Welcome back to Rhapsody Podcast, episode 14, or as we were referring to it, the Jack Hour. Uh, that's right. Jack Armstrong is our first guest, and it's uh, all about Jack. We go into his coaching career, how he all got started, how he gets into broadcasting, his view on the NBA, the Raptors. It's it's a long list of uh, insights from Jack. He was awesome, uh, very uh, energetic. We had a really uh, good time with him and uh, really can't thank him enough uh, for doing this. So uh, I think everyone will enjoy it. He even, uh, Jack even jumps in on the what drives you fucking crazy segment. And it was uh, like right out of the gates, easily one of our, our best ones. If not, it could have been our best one. I don't know. Um, so he was, uh, he was in for the whole thing well past the Kate Marcotte zone uh, today. And uh, you know, and it included our first ever Twitter question, which may be the worst Twitter question uh, ever. But at least we uh, we are now we've broken that seal, uh, and we now have Twitter questions. So so there you go. So you guys will enjoy it uh, if you like Jack, if you like the Raptors. It's uh, it's a good it's a good episode. So uh, here it is. But uh, in light of uh, Jack's coaching career, um, our first our very first uh, guest of the episode actually is uh, Coach Jim Calhoun, uh, talking about uh, his salary. So uh, Coach, do you want to uh, let us know how you, how your thoughts are of uh, how much money you get paid? Oh, uh, considering that you're the highest paid state employee and there's a $2 billion budget deficit, yep. do you think that's... Not a dime back. <laughs> Not a dime back. Not a dime back. I'd like to be able to retire someday. Oh, I'm getting tired. $1.6 million is enough? I'm sorry? $1.5 million? I make a lot more than that. You do? Yeah. What's the... Uh, what's, your what's, the what's the take tonight? I, I don't know. What's the deal with Comcast for You're not really that stupid, are you? Yeah, I am. Okay. No, My best advice to you? Yeah. Shut up. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. You're welcome. It was very polite. No, it wasn't polite. I mean, like, you shut up. This is like, if you want to talk to me outside, I'm more than happy to talk to you. We're talking well, about basketball. If you guys covered this stuff, I wouldn't have to do it. Will you please? I'm quite frankly, we bring in $12 million to the university. Nothing to do with state funds. We make $12 million a year for this university. Get some facts and come back and see me. Get some facts and come back and see me. Don't throw out salaries or other things. Get some facts and come back and see me. We turn over over $12 million to the University of Connecticut, which is state-run. Next question. Well, catch as we promised, sitting right before us. Hello. <laughs> the Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong is with us. Jack, thank you for making the, uh, the time to be with us today. Dave, now, Dave and Chris, I'm honored to be here. We're in San Francisco, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Game day, we get the Warriors tonight. But for you guys, I'm happy to hang out with you for a while and chat, chat hoops or whatever you'd like to talk about. All right. Well, first things first, Jack, and I want you to, I want you to be, I want you to think about this for a second. You're 20 plus years in 22, the industry. 22, yeah. 22 years in the industry. Where does this rank? Where's this right? Oh, this is one of the greatest moments in my life right now to, to be sitting with uh, esteemed um, <laughs> podcast gurus like yourselves. And you're wearing the hello T-shirts and you're wearing the new hello St. Patrick's Day hats. Uh, I'm like honored and thrilled. This is one of the biggest moments in my life. <laughs> you know, my wedding day. uh my wife and I were fortunate to adopt three children. So those are all big moments in life. Uh, Raptors winning an NBA championship, uh, being hired as a Division One head coach. Those are all big, big moments. And then today uh, might be 
the cherry on top of the uh, the Sunday. Well, you know, listen, you know, listen, Jack. I, it's a top fifty for me, for sure. <laughs> so it's only top fifty for me. But that's, those are very kind words. Catch is it? Uh, is it registering your radar at all? Yeah, uh, top. Other than Sue's marriage and the birth of my children, this is right up there. This is number three. This Who's is number married three. married to, though? Right? <laughs> yeah, you didn't marriage. mention uh, well, her, ma- her marriage. Yes, Sue's marriage. A lot of people ask that question. A lot of people ask that question. <laughs> All right, listen, Jack, we're going to get into this here a little bit. We're going to try and uh, carve off a few sec- uh, few sections of your uh, career. So why, why don't you start us off with just a little bit of background of where it all started, how you got into uh, this, well, how you got into the coaching aspect Uh, But my first question, were you a player as a kid? I was a lousy player. Uh, There's a guy that uh, is here in San Francisco, actually, uh, that I played against as a kid, Chris Mullen, who's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's okay. He's really good. And I played against him from the time we were probably six or seven years old. And early on in life, I recognized that, like, that guy's really good and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) So I played. uh, I tried. But uh, I was a 5'11 power forward there at Diamond Dozen, and Chris grew to 6'7 and uh, went on to, uh, you know, be the player of the year in college basketball and uh, uh, NBA All-Star and obviously a gold medal Olympian and, and Hall of Famer. So, and uh, now is doing television for the Warriors um, and was formerly the general manager of the Warriors and former head coach at St. John's. So, uh, I would say that he had an esteemed career and I didn't. So I think early on in life, I kind of knew that my uh, playing career wasn't going to lead to much. And I still love the game. And, you know, so I kind of just started coaching and fell in love. with. What was your first coaching gig? Uh, actually, I, I went back and coached at my high school. Uh, for two years when I was in college. I didn't know. Shout it out. Uh, Nazareth High School in Brooklyn. And I was the freshman coach and assistant varsity coach. And uh, we had a teacher, uh, Bob O'Donnell, that was a, 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 I was only, what was I, 19, 20 years old. So he was my assistant because I needed somebody to drive the van. I wasn't old enough to drive the school van with a bunch of 15 year old boys. So, uh, so I did that for two years. And then uh, actually I coached in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, a parish called St. Brendan's Parish in Brooklyn. I did that for a few years prior to that as well. You know, just anything, uh, CYO, high school. And then I was fortunate enough, I was coaching basically at Nazareth, which is uh, in the Catholic high school league. And at the time, I would say it probably was the most powerful high school basketball league in the United States. There were Division One players left and right. At the time, I was coaching in the league, uh, uh, Kenny Smith, Mark Jackson, uh, Pearl Washington were three of the big names uh, in all, all in the same year. Uh, you know, so it, it was an incredibly uh, – it was a, it was just – so uh, I, I worked basketball camps in the summer, and a good friend of mine, Pete Millen, who was the lead assistant at Notre Dame for Digger Phelps, uh, he – called Tom Penders, who at the time was the head coach at Fordham. Yep. And, see, and I don't know if you know this, but you have a guy that is a Fordham student that is a high school coach in the New York City Catholic High School League. He knows everybody, and he's a student uh, at Fordham. You should bring him in and talk to him. So I met with Tom, and he said, you know what? I have a Ford spot on my staff as a, you know assistant coach. Would you like to you know, be a Division One assistant, at, like as an undergrad assistant? So here I am coaching guys. I'm 21 years old, and I'm coaching guys my own age. Uh, but 
you know, I've, I've been on a different path than those guys. I was on a path of learning the game as a coach and spending a lot of time at clinics and working camps and the whole bit. And uh, he gave me a lot of responsibility and opportunity. And I worked with some amazing guys there. Um, you know, geez, my last year at Fordham, uh, I was an assistant, Stan Van Gundy and I were, were assistants together at Fordham. No way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, crazy story. Uh, the two finalists for the lead assistant job at Niagara University were me and Jeff Van Gundy, his brother. And meanwhile, I'm working with Stan. And Stan says, I got a root for my brother. I love you, but I got a root for him. And I was l- lucky enough to get the job. And then Stan- and Jeff got the job at Rutgers. So a few years later, I'm hired as the head coach at Niagara. And Jeff pulls me up. He goes, what are you kidding me? You got this. That would have been me. And then years later, then Jeff went on to be an assistant with Don Nelson and and then uh, Pat Riley with the Knicks. And he ran out of tackle, ended, tackle some legs. Yeah. yeah. And then he ended up becoming the head coach of the Knicks. So I reached out to him. I'm saying, damn, that would have been me. You know, so <laughs> you never know where life takes you. North. And, you know, then I was the head coach at Niagara for nine years. And then here I am with the Raptors for 22. So, well, hang on a second. Hang on. Let's- winded answer. But the bottom line was I was not a great player. Uh, I was a hack. And, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of ways to get in the game and there's a lot of opportunities to get in the game. And that's my path, how I got in. All right. So let's go back to Fordham for a second. So you get the, you get the gig from Tom. Uh, do you know at that moment, like, that's it, you're hooked. Like you're, you're going to coach, you're going to be part of basketball. That's what you're doing. Totally. And he did the most uh, incredible thing for me that, that has impacted my career and my life. Really. Uh, my first two years, I was an undergrad. So at that point, I graduated from Fordham. I have a bachelor's degree in history. I can tell you when the War of eighteen twelve was. Uh, so at that moment, it's now the moment. No, because he has no idea. <laughs> you know, now you don't know what you're going to do with your life. You know, so now I'm interviewing for assistance jobs at other schools, and Tom says to me, "So I'm, I'll never forget it. I'm working at Villanova basketball camp. Roly Massimino comes out on the floor." He grabs me. He goes, Jack, come in my office. I'm like, all right, what the hell's going on here? Um, and it was funny. At the time, Brooklyn Connection, I had brought Terrence Mullen, Chris Mullen's little brother, with me. He was a high school player in New York. I brought Terrence down uh, to Villanova with me for basketball camp. And Terrence ended up playing at St. John's, just like his brother did. But Oli calls me in his office. He goes, uh, Tom Penders is on the phone. I'm like, all right. Hey, coach, what's going on? He said, Jack. I don't want you interviewing with anybody else. He goes, I have one final basketball scholarship left and I want to give it to you. Meaning, you know, at the time we had 15 basketball scholarships. We had 14 on scholarship and we could have gone out and recruited some guy from LA or Chicago, right. or wherever, and given that guy the last scholarship playing scholarship. Fordham didn't have a graduate assistant position, you know, Right. So he said, I'm, I'm putting you on basketball scholarship. Wow. Uh, you're that important to me and to our staff. And you have that good a career ahead of you that I believe in you. And I want, you know, so like, and that's to this day, the most impactful thing anyone's ever done for me. Like, because now you're like, oh my God, if, if this guy and Tom, you know, if you look at Tom Penn's record, he went on to become the head coach university of Texas and uh, Rhode he's in the Rhode Island. Island. Yeah. George Washington, University of Houston, he just retired. I mean, he's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, for him to believe in me like that uh, was, 
I, Mike, if he thinks that of me, then maybe I got a chance in this thing. So, uh, and you know, here I am. Then four years later, I'm the I'm a Division One head coach. What age? Twenty six. So that was like you know, uh, this is your life moment where a, a guy, uh, very prominent, sees something in you that maybe you didn't even see in yourself. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Well, that's how it works, right? You get you yeah. have those breaks in life, and yeah, you took advantage of it. It's awesome. Um, now, listen, you did in that uh, that long winded answer, which is great. You did gloss over. One one piece here. What happened at Niagara? Because don't forget, don't forget. I've, I've warned you. Your wife yeah, is coming on this podcast. No, no. You forget the most important part at Niagara. Oh, the most important. I met my wife. She That's was right. a, she was a Division One women's soccer coach, and uh, she was also women's basketball assistant before I got there. Uh, but she had no time for me when I was the assistant at Niagara, <laughs> and then suddenly when I became the head coach, uh, and the profile, the profile, the profile yeah, changed. yeah. I was working in a Catholic school, so there definitely wasn't an extra zero on the back end of my salary. Uh, but true story, I'm hired at Niagara. I'm making $18,000 as the lead assistant. I'm brought in by Father Brian O'Connell. He says, we're naming you the head coach at Niagara. We're going to give you a $7,000 raise. We're going to bump you up to $25,000. Meanwhile, everyone else in my conference is making over $100,000, but they're paying off the guy that I'm that got, just yeah, got fired. So he says, I'm going to give you a $7,000 raise. And Jack, I want you to keep that between you and I. <laughs> so I said, don't worry, Father. I'm embarrassed. Too. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, you know, I worked for nothing my first year. Um, but again, as we, as I say all the time when I speak to kids, uh, value experience. Don't value money. The money will come later. I'm still waiting for the money, but I'm having a great experience. You know what? Sure. I hope you're not waiting for it from this podcast. <laughs> no, no, yeah. uh, we'll get you some swag. We'll get you some okay. uh, fried chicken. Take fried chicken. Okay. It's a low swag. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because listen, I told you, Dina's coming on the pod. We've already talked to her about that. And anything you say, anything you say, she's going to have to. Uh, she's tough. The feisty soccer, the feisty soccer coach. Okay, yeah, she'll, talk, she'll talk soccer with you. Yeah, she will. She will. How she? Oh, she's how a she along, How she got along with the refs? The refs and her. The refs. Oh, yeah, we heard those stories. She yeah. just go off on the refs when I coach <laughs> I can't see that with Dina. Oh my God! Very, very emotional, very intense. And by the way, her father, her late dad, was a high school basketball ref and also refed uh, junior college in upstate New York. So he used to ref all our scrimmages at Niagara. And I used to say to him, I said, Alan, you're a great guy, but a horseshit official. But but he was a great guy. Uh, <laughs> and his good buddy uh, is a Canadian Basketball Hall of Famer, and that's Ron Foxcroft, who still works the whistle, at the table. The whistle, man. That's what he whistle and yeah. transport. And, and Ron and my late father-in-law were great friends. And Ron used to ref my games uh, when I was at Niagara. Uh, Ron was a terrific college basketball official, ref in the Big Ten, the Atlantic Ten. Uh, I mean, he, you know, obviously did the Olympics. My games. Did the Olympics. Yeah. You know, yeah. so uh, I mean, the guy is a, a prominent, big time guy, and, and he still works. He sits at the table at the arena right now for Raptor home games. He and his son split the games, and uh, you know, during the coach's review, he's there for any issues. Yeah. Go ahead, so, Kit. So, as, as, as a as a coach, Jack, were you were you would you classify yourself as a, as a feisty coach or you want to sit back and just sort of let things play no, out? No, no, I was, Chris, I was really emotional, intense, over the top, passionate, enthusiastic. Um, 
And there were times, uh, probably my first few years, I tried to coach like every pass, and, and I was way too um, – I'll never forget the great Al McGuire, and I heard him at a coaching clinic one time. He says, when you – he goes, you need uh, – he goes, when you have a big game, you need to walk in the locker room, and you need to uh, have a limp wrist. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about, limp wrist? He said uh, – he goes, you have to – if you're ha- if you're very rigid and intense – Guys get tense, and they can't play looking over their shoulders. A, a great coach that I love, the guy named Jim Maloney, and Jim was the lead assistant at Temple, and he had been the head coach at Niagara in the '60s, and he was at John with John Cheney at, at Temple, and uh, Jim recruited Calvin Murphy, who was in the Basketball Hall of Fame, to Niagara, and Jim said to me one time, "We're out for drinks. Uh, I think it was at the NCAA Final Four, and he said, "Could I offer you one bit of advice?" I'm like, sure. He said, I love your intensity and your enthusiasm. It's okay to be that way when your team's on defense. It's okay to be that way when your team's in in a situation where they have to rebound or win loose ball battles or take charges, all that stuff. But on offense, you need to let it breathe. You know, you need to get a, a, you know, like Larry Brown, John Wooden, they would get a a piece of paper or like a rolled up program, uh, you know, just to kind of, yeah, you, you gotta, you know, offenses like are it's it, it's free flowing, it's expression, and uh, you know you look at a guy like Jim Beheim, coach. Jim Beheim gets on the officials and whines a lot and all that, but you never see his players look over their shoulder when they play from offensively. So I think that's the thing I had to learn as I went along, is that for guys to really grow offensively, you know, you got to teach them to practice, and then once they get out there. Uh, it's it's a free flowing form of expression that they have to get better at. So I was incredibly intense, very, very passionate. Uh, I would say in practice, you know, yeller, screamer, uh, a few choice words here and there. Uh, but nonetheless, I think as you mature, as you get older, uh, you, you know, you plan, you work, you work, you plan, you get better at being more analytical and less emotional. And uh, because I think if players are truly develop, they got to have that ability to do that. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, but at 26, yeah. it's tough to, tough to have oh, that perspective. Yeah. It's tough to have a handle on your emotions, you know, yeah, and, and sure. it, it, it's your whole world. It's your big moment. It's your big chance. Uh, I mean, here I was in my four, you know, and I'm very proud of my first four years. We went from six to eight to 14 to 23 wins. Uh, every year we got better. Creep, crawl, walk, run. We got to postseason play. We played Boston College in the NIT. Um you know, we had uh, one of the top five records in Niagara history at the time. Uh, we had a, like an 11-game winning streak. I mean, it, it, so we turned it around. When I took over, uh, you know, the challenge is you got to continue to do it every year, and, and we didn't. And, you know, I've talked about it openly. Uh, my career record is 100 and 154. I'm very proud of the fact as my four years as an assistant at Fordham, and the 10 years I spent at Niagara, every guy I coached that went through our program graduated. So I didn't break the rule. I did it right. I can look at myself in the mirror. I can look at them and say, look, I, you know, these guys are all in their 40s, late 40s now, you know, married, kids, coaches, executives, whatever. And uh, anytime I see them, they know I had their best interests at heart and did it right. Uh, at the same time, you got to win. And I didn't win enough, you know. And, and it's funny, I spoke at an event at Niagara University. Here I was fired there 22 years ago, and I spoke there last Friday um, as a keynote speaker, 
to their sports administration program. And I, a kid raised his hand at the end of my presentation. I took a few questions. He said, what was your biggest failure and how did it define you? And I said, my biggest failure was right here. I got fired. I said, but here I am 22 years later back as the keynote speaker at Niagara University and the president of the school just introduced me. 22 years ago, they fired me here. Yeah, uh, and I, I really noticed that too, Jack. When we're, when we're in Lewiston and, and we're walking around town and and everybody in the town is, hey, coach, hey, coach. Like you're still recognized as, hey, coach, from 22 years ago, still in your own hometown. So that's that's a, an, an awful respect. Yeah, no, and, and, and the thing I always say to kids, Chris, is that, and Dave, I mean, you know, we all have children. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. And you're going to fail a lot in life. And you know, Dave, your son's an elite tennis player. I mean, there's a big, there's a lot of failure in that sport, and a lot of it is is the the last six inches of your body and and how you think and how you process and how you process failure. Just, just for the the listening audience, Jack's talking about the brain. He's talking about the brain, the last six inches <laughs> being the brain. <laughs> hey, you get my point, and and so I my point to these uh, students was, hey man, I'm an example of it. I failed, you know, but. So what? You got to just keep grinding. You got to be resilient, and uh, to, you know. So that that to me is uh, such an important part of it in sports. Uh, you're going to fail a lot. There's failure every night. I mean, nobody plays a perfect game, and I think sometimes fans get uh, too crazy about a particular game or a particular player. I mean, it's an imperfect game. I mean, and the great ones get better at, at just fine-tuning and being more efficient, I guess. Well, Jack, just so you know, you're on a very level-headed podcast here. We don't have any of those emotions. (laughs) (laughs) I have never said blow it up. I've never said blow it up. Not this week. Not this week. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) The third best team in the NBA right Bit of a doom and gloom. Bit of a doom and gloom, Jack. Listen, I don't like to – don't use the word fire. Niagara just asked you not to come back. That's what I told my dad at the end of when I got kicked out of. Oh, I had a year left on my contract, so they paid me to not yeah, come back. Right. They asked you not to come back. That's right. We're going to pay you, but just don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> I told my dad that same thing when they kicked me out of first year university uh, business program. I said, Dad, I didn't get kicked out. They just asked me not to come back next year. <laughs> and you know what? <laughs> Here I am. He didn't find that very amusing. At the time, I can tell you that. All right. So uh, you're asked not to come back at Niagara, yep. which, leads you into the ne- which leads you into the next phase of your career. Yeah. So how do you just make that leap from Niagara? To, to this, this side uh, of the Actually, the Raptors had an opening. Isaiah Thomas left. Um, and so uh, th- there was an opening as a radio analyst. And a buddy of mine, John Griffin, who had been the head coach at St. Joe's, uh, uh, got out of coaching and was a kind of a Wall Street broker. And on the side, he would do college basketball. Well, um, he was asked by uh, the Raptors, when they played in Philadelphia, Washington, New York, New Jersey, and Boston on the Eastern Seaboard to, to come in and do their games uh, as a radio analyst uh, on those games. So when I got fired at Niagara, Griff called me. He said, hey, you know, sorry to hear what happened, blah, blah, blah. What are you thinking of doing? I said, I got a year left on my deal. I think I'm going to – I said, I'm burnt out. I don't. I need a year away from coaching minimum. I'm going to try broadcasting for a year and have some fun with it and then go back to coaching. He says, you know, you should reach out to Toronto. He goes, I'm doing this right now. He goes, I can't do it full time. He goes, but I think they want somebody full time to do it. So uh, here I am. I live an hour, 15 hour and 20 from Toronto. So I just, you know, I reached out uh, and tried little, did some research and found out 
uh, that they were thinking about it. And uh, I went, literally did a demo tape. I sat in a studio in Buffalo with a guy named Howard Simon, who was a big uh, radio personality in Buffalo. He used to do my games when I was at Niagara. He used to be our play-by-play guy. So he and I went and sat in a studio and called a game off a television, a mock game. And then I sent that tape to a guy named Nelson Millman, who's one of my uh, mentors in my career. Nelson was the program director at the Fan 590 yeah. and sent that as well to the Raptors. And lo and behold, I, you know, I had a lot of different people call on my behalf. And Nelson, after a while, just said, all right, I surrender. Give up. Uh, I'll hire you, you know. Uh, that was the extent. That was the extent of your Yes, I had no experience. On tape. Uh, yeah. And I got hired. Now, obviously, I got hired right away. I was very fortunate. Uh, two Fordham friends of mine, Mike Breen, who's the voice of the NBA for uh, ESPN, ABC, and obviously the Knicks, and Michael Kay, the voice of the Yankees. They're Fordham guys and they're friends of mine. They reached out to their friends at MSG Network in New York, a guy named Mike McCarthy. Um, and he hired me at MSG Network to do college basketball. And then they also hired me to do the WNBA, the Liberty. Um, and then I got hired on, uh, you know, ESPN Regional, the Atlantic 10 Network. So I got a lot of opportunities right away with college basketball. So literally my first year I was doing Raptors radio and I was doing a ton of college basketball on television. So I was getting the television experience as well. And I, I was partnered obviously with a guy that uh, has had an incredible career in Chuck Swirsky, uh, who I worked with on both radio and TV for 10 years with the Raptors. And Chuck is now obviously with the Chicago Bulls. So it was an amazing experience to uh, work with Chuck. And we were, a, you know, it was our first NBA opportunity for both of us. The first three years, we were the radio guys. And it developed a great following. Our fans really were like, who are these guys on the radio? And it became a really, uh, I don't know, us listen, but in the basketball community in Toronto and Southern Ontario, people are like, hey, these guys are a pretty good listen. And then little by little, uh, we both evolved over to TV. And uh, and I still, to this day, do both TV and radio. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah well, you guys, yeah, I remember I listened to early days to you and Chuck. Uh, and it was, you guys, I mean, it was, you know, basketball is still at that time relatively new to the Canadian airwaves. And I think you guys built a pretty hardcore base, uh, you know, of, of the non, you know, the non-hockey people. Like you guys had a, had a pretty good following from a from the jump, which was yeah, I mean, and Chuck, you know, Chuck was a guy, you know, I, I say this all the time and it, it's remarkable. If I was hired in 1998 by the Celtics, the Lakers, the Knicks, uh, I don't think I could could be the way I am. Like I couldn't that actually be right. myself. Right. Uh, I'm actually myself uh, I, uh, because those are established brands. I started with literally a starter company. I mean, my I, the Raptors were in existence for three years. I think they, they were coming off a 16 and 66 season. They were a downright mess. And there was a lot of questions, not only about the Vancouver Grizzlies, there were a lot of questions about whether the Toronto Raptors could survive uh, in the NBA and whether basketball could survive in Canada. Well, the first game I ever did as a Raptor broadcaster was Vince Carter's first game in the Boston uh, and Paul Pierce's first game in the Celtics. And I had coached against Paul when he played at Kansas. Um, and either of those guys now will end up both in the Hall of Fame. But my point is, we got Chuck and I got in with a starter company. We could kind of be ourselves because no one knew any better. Uh, 
there were no expectations. And then suddenly this guy from North Carolina, who quote unquote is the next coming of Michael Jordan, gets thrown in our lap and we have a blank canvas to paint with and let's do it. And, you know, so suddenly all these uh, early iconic moments in Raptor history start happening and our voices are part of it. And it just takes off from there. And, you know, we grew with the team and, and you know, and, and kind of the whole thing just took off. And uh, and I really feel that way. So, but when did you know when, like, so if you go back to Fordham, right, you, you get into coaching, you think, okay, this is it. I'm going to be doing coach and I love it. I'm, I'm in, right? I'm hooked. At, when did you know, when did you have that same feeling about broadcasting? When did you know that this is it? I'm doing this now. It took me a long time uh, because every year there were opportunities to leave and go be a lead assistant at a major college program, you know, put your, two, three, four years in there and then go on and be a division one head coach. We know, we know how Dina feels about assistant. <laughs> <laughs> the money would have been a lot more if I'm an assistant at Ohio state or Michigan. Yeah, a little different, a little different. Uh, but then those jobs take you then to an opportunity to be a, you know, a coach at a, a pretty prominent situation. Um, and I just, I, I had a guy, a guy named Pete Lonergan who was the head coach at Niagara in the eighties. And I had, a, I had a major offer. I don't know what year I was in with the Raptors. So, Pete, I got to talk to you. I, I'm wrestling with this. So we go. He says, all right, why don't you come with me to my son's baseball game? And then we'll go out to dinner after. So we go watch his son, Kevin, play uh, for St. Joseph's High School in Buffalo. We're at the game. He says, Jack, I want you to know this. Go see Kevin looking over at us. I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's not you seeing them. It's them seeing you seeing them. You know, that's fatherhood, right? We're all fathers. And he said, if I was still coaching, I wouldn't be here right now. And, you know, in coaching, I used to call it all the time, we all do, acknowledge neglect. You miss a lot of experiences that your kids have uh, because you're on the road, particularly as a college coach, you're spending so much time recruiting, uh, fundraising. I mean, other than the president of the school, you're the most prominent person in the university yeah. community. So you have a high profile job. And a lot of times it takes you away from your family. I, I saw an interview recently with Kevin Hart, the comedian, and he said uh, he had a major car accident in Malibu this past summer. And he said, you can't marry your career and date your family. You know, and that was kind of Pete's point was, do you really want to look at you right now? You're having a great time broadcasting. He goes, you are actually you, your authentic self, and you're fun. Uh, you're candid. You can be yourself. Uh, they allow you to be you. You're having a great time. You have a smile on your face. All your coaching friends are happy for you because you're happy. And now you want to go back into the insanity and the cesspool of college recruiting and college coaching. Are you blanking nuts? You know, like, uh, and we went out to dinner, and by the end of the night, uh, he, thank God, it convinced me uh, to stay with it. And, and I had, you know, I had a number of those opportunities uh, to do it, and I'm glad I did. You know, so it was a, uh, you know, you just, you never know. I mean, I, like, I feel like I've been able to be, and this job's hard, too, because you travel a lot. Oh, yeah. And at least when I come home, my mind's not somewhere else. You know, I think when you're coaching, your your mind is never. You walk in the door, but you ha, you, you you're just you're not there. You know, like your mind's in the gym, your mind's on a recruit, your mind's on some because there's always problems. I mean, it's constant. Nobody's happy. There's always crisis. Even when you're winning, 
this crisis. And uh, so you're always on red alert. So I feel like I've been able to be as good a husband, as good a father as I can be in this job. And I think if I were coaching and I know how emotionally wrapped up I used to be in it, it's harder to be that. Yeah. Well, now, except you say that, um, but you almost made the move right there. I read the article at the athletic. You talked about how that you had that, uh, well, that chance to become part of the, uh, the rap. Yeah, I, I, uh, Wayne Embry uh, was the interim GM at the time when Rob Babcock got fired. And uh, Wayne wasn't sure yet if he wanted to kind of actually say, I'm going to do it long-term or if he was just going to kind of bridge the gap and then they would go get another guy. Uh, so Wayne and I were very close and, uh, Wayne said, why don't you do this? And I said, okay. And then, but I, I'm like, what if, uh, what if they hire Chris kitchen in two months as the GM and he wants to bring, which is normal in sports, bring your own guys in, which is cool. You know, where do I go? So, uh, very nicely, uh, Richard Petty, who was the president CEO at the time and, and Larry Tannenbaum, uh, the chairman, they you know, made sure the people at MLSC and at the time I was with Rogers, that if, if in fact that were to happen, I would have the opportunity to go back directly into my job again as a broadcaster. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. And I had no interest at that stage. And I don't even know what the year was, probably 2006 or 2006. seven. So uh, I had no more interest in coaching, but I was fascinated with management and leadership. And I felt like uh, you know, what I was and, and have, having been in the NBA now for seven, eight years, whatever it was at the time, I felt like I could be an asset. I had spent enough time with coaches in the league, players, executives that I was like, and I'm meeting all these people. And I'm like, there's no doubt I can do this uh, based upon my background. And now my background, in the NBA, I'm not some college guy that doesn't understand the of the pro game. And I felt like I could be a major asset uh, in an organization because of my background and my experience in the NBA. And then, which was just odd, literally I accept it. And within probably 18 hours, Richard calls me up because we got to put this on hold. We have a guy we didn't think we were going to get until the off season or had maybe had an opportunity to get uh, is we think we're going to get him. And he, obviously with respect to him, we got to allow him to come in and do his own thing and we can't force anyone on him. So uh, I said, okay. And then they end up only time ever a guy, an acting GM from one team left in season. Angelo leaving the Phoenix suns to come to the Raptors. And, you know, you know, Wayne and Brian chatted and Brian understood what, what I was going to be doing with Wayne. And I chatted with Brian and respectfully, Brian had guys in mind and, I'm cool. I've been in the business. You know, you got to get the guys that you know and you trust. And Brian and I only knew each other like, hey, how you doing? And we've since developed a great relationship. I like Brian a lot. Uh, and, you know, I just say, hey, man, I'm cool with it. I'm supportive. Bring your guys in and I'll be here and I'll be supportive. And we ha we've had a really good relationship. So that ship sailed and life goes on. And, it's worked uh, out. It's worked out great. And I'm, I'm, uh, I have no interest in management. I have no interest in coaching. I love what I'm doing, and I'm very fortunate to be doing it. So who are, going to your broadcasting career, who are the guys that have helped you along the way or that you look up to or they sort of you've, you've modeled yourself from a broadcasting perspective? It's like you've, you've well, I, I would say management people first in, in Canada. I would say Nelson Millman at the FAM. Um, 
John Shannon, uh, who was, uh, uh, he was the guy that kind of brought me into television, um, uh, from a Raptor perspective, he was a director of broadcast for MLSE and, and he was a vice president of broadcasting for the NHL. He was an executive uh, producer of hockey night in Canada. He's had some big jobs and, you know, kind of like a Tom Penders, these guys saw something in me that in some ways I hadn't seen in myself yet. Uh, Paul Graham, who's a senior VP at TSN, who's an amazing TV guy, who was our TV producer with the Raptors. Uh, I would say Mark Millier, uh, who was used to be the vice president, senior VP at TSN. Uh, Scott Moore, who uh, ran broadcast at Sportsnet and gave me a huge opportunity to do studio on the NBA for Sportsnet and gave me an incredible opportunity. So those would be guys in Canada that have had a major influence on me uh, in my broadcasting career. And then I, I, I guess to your point about influences uh, as a broadcaster, I, I'm a huge baseball fan. I grew up in New York and I'm a, a Yankee fan. I'm actually a Yankee fan. I'm a real fan. I, I started following them when they sucked in the late 60s. <laughs> they were drawing about three, 4,000 people. The Bronx was burning the whole thing. They were in a decrepit, messed up old Yankee stadium. And uh, they were terrible. And the Mets were good. And I grew up in Brooklyn. Everybody in Brooklyn's a Met fan because the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, they were the National League team uh, that replaced the Dodgers. So uh, I rooted for the the Yankees. I mean, who would think of that? They're the evil empire. But nonetheless, uh, they had a guy that broadcasted their games. And I fell in love with the Yankees because of Phil Rizzuto. The Scooter. Holy cow. Uh, it was a meatloaf song, Paradise by a Dashboard Light. And his, his, I don't think he knew what he was doing when he did the play-by-play for that song. But nonetheless, Phil Rizzuto uh, made – Phil Rizzuto's in a Hall of Fame shortstop. I don't know, he won like seven, eight titles. He and Yogi Berra were, you know, amazing. Uh, and he had so much fun calling Yankees. Uh, there was passion and joy and storytelling and – and, and, and also really good insight of the sport of baseball, where I learned a lot. And I love baseball. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan. So that was a guy. Uh, you know, John Madden, when he first left coaching from the Raiders, and I don't know if I've ever, I, you know, I, I hear a guy like Tony Romo now who's at a next level as a broadcaster. I, I think he's fabulous. When Madden got out of it, I learned so much about line play and – you know, what created uh, a sack or what created a four and a half yard gain. And, you know, lo- you know, all, all 22, like he could really see the whole picture and talk about it. And he was a great, insightful and funny and entertaining. Um, you know, a guy that a few basketball guys would be Al McGuire, uh, who was a New York guy like me, a former coach and went into broadcasting. And Al, Al kind of was a, New York street guy who could talk the game, but he did it in a way like kind of my style. I'm, Joe I'm not really technical. Uh, Al was great. Bill Raftery, who I think is a, the a, a Bill Raftery, a fabulous broadcaster. And another guy like me, former college coach, did the NBA for a while with the Nets and has gone on to have an amazing career with CBS and, and, uh, you know, ESPN and all that and Fox. Um, uh, those would be a few guys. And, um, 
you know, I, I, I even like I, I really study analysts. I think John McEnroe on tennis. Yeah. A lot of, it seems to all come to the same thing. They're all New York Irish guys. <laughs> but, you know, but that's, you know, a John, John McEnroe. Obviously, John McEnroe is a great player, a, an elite, one of the all time, you know, elite players. But he brings a, a perspective as, a, as an analyst. And Nelson Millman taught me this when I first started in Toronto. He goes, your job's to f- tell me why and how, frame it, give me a jam, teach me something, and be concise. Don't be verbose. Don't be wordy. Um, Bill Raftery taught me change your voice levels. Don't always talk in the same voice. You got to take it down. You got to take it up. You got to punctuate. You got to give an exclamation point. Uh, you got to meet the moment. You know, so I guess those would be some random thoughts about broadcasting. I hope that helps. Yeah, I know. But leading into that, sorry, Kitch, uh, just we talked about this last night a little bit. You also said, which I was interested in, and maybe you can just give a, a little bit of color around this. You said you got a group of guys that sort of keep you in check. And by that, you meant, you know, it, I think you were telling me that you go to a certain people now and say, hey, if you see something yeah. that either. Well, I mean, like, all those guys I mentioned, uh, you know, they watch the games and they listen to the games. And I've always said to them, you know, I, when I see them, how am I doing? You know, like, how am I doing? What do you think? And they'll shoot straight with me and tell me this, that, the other thing. Uh, and, and I always say to them, you know, if you see something or hear something that you say, hey, you can get better at this. I want to know it, you know. And, uh, you know, a guy uh, that was really helping me, a guy, UB Brown, who played at Niagara. Now, UB is 86, I think. And, uh, but UB is a whole thing. Broadcaster, but he was a longtime coach in the NBA, as we know. And uh, UB recommended me for the job with the Raptors. And UB was in, uh, UB taught me a long time ago. And I say this to young broadcasters all the time. And I was joking with you guys last night. We were chatting about our business and nobody coaches people. They don't mentor. They don't teach. Uh, I'm not knocking it. It's just, it's, it's such a busy world we live in right now that uh, th- that's a big challenge. And UB's whole point is you must seek out coaching. You must have people critically pan your work, I guess would be the, you know, and, and evaluate it. He goes, because this is what the broadcasting industry is. Great job, great job, great job. You're fired, you know, and and like and, and they're walking you out the door, and you're like, what happened? You know, how'd this happen? Uh, because you expect them to coach you, and most of the time they don't have the time, and you get thrown, and the red light comes on, and you're either ready or not. And if it doesn't work, they go get somebody else. And because it's your responsibility to seek out the coaching, so it's pretty cool. UB uh, was in town working the NBA Finals last year, and they have that Raptor, what is it called, game in an hour or whatever, where they condense the game. And he says, hey, I watch your uh, interviews on TSN, on SportsCenter, and I watch the game in an hour. I said, what do you think, Coach? He goes, you're doing fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but when I hear that from a guy like that, sure. yeah. like, to me, you know, I, that guy is one of the greatest uh, analysts we've ever had in any sport. Um, you know, so to me, I, I, UB, UB's more technical. UB's a technical coach. Uh, and he's got a sense of humor, but he's more on the, on the serious and technical side. I try to be more on the, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack, Joe Bag of Donuts, kind of talk to people uh, on, on a more passionate human level. And yet I sprinkle in my coaching 
hat and use it, particularly, you know, in playoff games and big games, I tone back the fun and I'm more analytical and serious. Yeah. And then on a night in the middle of February where it's a snowstorm and you're playing in Cleveland, I mean, what the hell? You might as well have some fun and it's a 15, 20 point game. I mean, this is show business. I mean, what is ESPN? ESPN is the entertainment and sports network. I mean, what is MLSE? Weekly sports and entertainment. You know, so this is show business. And I'm not here. I'm not splitting the atom. I'm not finding a cure to an incurable disease. I'm not solving any world economic issues. Uh, I'm just talking sports. And it's the toy department of life, you know? So, you know, I'm here to have a good time and make sure I hope to bring maybe a smile on someone's face. You sure it's not helping us solve the hangover disease. You've been, <laughs> you've, been, you've been throwing our way the last couple. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you and Maddie do have some fun. Like you guys do have some fun in the air. And, and a, a lot of my friends say, oh, those guys must really get along well. Cause they see the, the, the guys mesh very well, very jovial. And of course, Maddie, the, uh, Ball buster, he kind of is always, always trying to poke fun. And yeah, no, I mean it's interesting. Um, I have a great friendship. I mean, with the three primary guys I've worked with in Toronto. I mean, Chuck Swirsky, I worked with for ten years. Chuck and I to this day are, are close friends, and we still talk and text. Uh, obviously, Matt, who I've worked with now for twelve years in Toronto, and prior to that, I worked college basketball with him. I worked WNBA uh, when Chuck left. And at the time, Chris Hebb was our director of broadcast, and he he shot three names by me. Uh, he said, you know anything about these guys? I said, Devlin's your guy. I said, that guy's legit. And, you know, Matt Matt could call camel jockey racing. He's that good. Like, you know, like whatever you have him do, he's like Jim Nance. He's, uh, he's got a network way about him. He's a, he's a, he's a big-time broadcaster, and he meets the moment. And he's a sensational broadcaster. Um, and, and you know, so we get along as people. You know, we're, we're, you know, Chuck had three kids. I have three kids. Matt has three sons like me. Uh, you know, Jones and Paul Jones is the other guy. I work with Jonesy on radio. And, and Jonesy's incredibly passionate about the game. So I have a great relationship with all three of those guys. And I think it shines through on the air because if, if you like the person you work with, you're going to tune in a little bit to more to what they say. And, and broadcasting is a, ta a tag team. Uh, it can't be uh, people uh, shouting over each other. It can't be uh, you saying something and not me and me not tagging it. Like if, if you know, that, tagging is a huge part of our job and, and building on each other's stories and respecting each other's space. I try to every game I do, uh, whether it be TV or radio, in the first few minutes of the game, I don't say much. I lay out. I let the play-by-play -play guy get his feet under him. And then little by little, I start jabbing in and chiming in a little bit more. Um, but and, and I guess my style, even on television, has been influenced by being on radio. I wouldn't say I'm a real wordy. Uh, I'm kind of in and out quick. Uh, I make my point, but I try to make it with you know different voice levels and enthusiasm, um, be, you know, and you want to, you, know, you want to be conversational, uh, but you got to get in and out. And our game today is so fast and there's so many threes that, uh, if you talk too much, you miss plays going back and forth. And Matt, uh, his style, Matt likes to acknowledge 
the main basket or a particular foul committed by somebody. He's very keen on that. There are other guys that have a different style that let it flow a little bit more, but I respect him and I'm going to play off of his style. I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the second wheel. Uh, and obviously Jonesy and I were on radio. It is our, the thing that drives me crazier than anything else is when I listen, when I'm driving in my car and I'm listening to television on radio. No, I can't see the play. Yeah. No, I'm not a mind reader and I don't know the score. And I don't know if it's on the right side or the left side or underneath or at the top of the key. I need to know that. And, and uh, I think we have a, when I do radio, I, I try to be incredibly descriptive and very uh, respectful of the guy who's driving in his car or someone who's out for a walk, their dog or whatever, and listening on the radio and making sure you you have that uh, those word pictures painted for you. So I, yeah, Jack. So I, I kind of sit in the same boat as you. Um, the uh, I, I do, I do have a, a CEO of this podcast. Here He's we go. Not great at tagging, so I'm just, just good, go. good fodder for good fodder for him to listen to this. That's good. Screw I like you, Steely. Screw oh, you, really? Steely. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. I wish I'd known that the criteria for doing something like this is would be with someone you like. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah would change. We probably have we probably have 500 unique listeners by now. If I'd known that, well, you're gonna have. To. Oh, we are. We're going to build this baby up. <laughs> um, all right. So listen, because we can do this all day. So we got we to be somewhat cognizant of time. Let's go 22 years at the Raps. Give me, not counting the championship because we're going to talk about that in a second. Your three highs, like your three moments that, that sort of stick out in your mind for the, like, that were exciting. And maybe sort of like three of like the, yeah. the lower points too. That uh, like, I would say three highs, even though they lost a uh, game seven against Brooklyn. The, uh, in the series, uh, the first year the Raptors made the playoffs, the we, the North, and the electricity and the passion and the excitement. And Pat Riley calls it the innocent climb. And it's just uh, it was just amazing, the, the love and enthusiasm and the, and the spirit that the fans had. Uh, that was one. Uh, I would say uh, two, uh, when uh, the Raptors – uh, won their first series ever, a five-game series in Madison Square Garden, where I was like, wow, you know, this thing has a chance of of happening. And then it was a, the next series against Philadelphia where the Raptors lost in seven was an amazing series. And, and for the first time, we really – we had Vince Carter fans, but now suddenly we had Raptor fans because they could see a winning product. So to me, that was – and then I, I guess the other one would be – people don't really remember this moment because it was kind of a blowout. Uh, the Raptors go game seven against Miami and win the East semis. And then they go on to play for the first time ever in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I'll never forget, I walked out of the arena. And that year, the whole Jurassic Park thing had really, Maple believe Square, had really taken off to another level. And that's the year LeBron, Raptors lost in six to LeBron and the Cavs. And LeBron then after the game was like, I can't believe these fans in Toronto. And um, that was like, Incredible. But walking out of the arena after the Miami game, uh, I ran into a bunch of fans and they were all outside crying and hugging me because they had been fans since day one. And now, hey, we're in the final four. We're in the East finals and we're playing, you know, LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. We're front and center in the NBA landscape now. And look at us, you know, the scenes, nobody in the NBA had ever seen anything like it. Like the scenes outside 
of uh, the arena were unlike anything anyone had ever seen for any NBA team. And I say this to this day, this franchise is unlike any other, sp- other franchise in the NBA. I mean, this is a national following. Uh, people all across Canada last year during the playoffs and particularly the finals had to watch parties, town squares everywhere. So it's, it's, it's we the North, uh, people not only wearing the Raptor hats, logos, uh, but, you know, the Canadian flag. So it, it's, it's like the Olympics. It's like the World Cup when you work for the Raptors. And having the opportunity to go, do game six last year, the finals, and call that iconic moment in Canadian basketball history, uh, and you look at you know, the ratings for that, which was like an Olympics, uh, to be part of that is, is a thrill and an honor. And I don't know if I'll, uh, you know, will I hope to replicate it. Uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. I know one thing, though. I know basketball is here to stay, and I know basketball is headed in even greater heights. Funny, I got a text a few hours ago before uh, we sat down here. A buddy of mine, I was out with him a few weeks ago, um, and his son plays baseball, also plays basketball. He sent me a text a few hours ago. He goes, I thought you'd find this interesting. My son signed up for baseball after his his basketball season's wrapping up. And he goes, a few years ago, when you signed up, you had to have your application in by midnight. If not, you wouldn't get on a team. He goes, now they can't even get enough people to fill the teams. He goes, on the other hand, basketball participation in the league that he's in is up 600%. Let me repeat that. 600%. And they live in the GTA. So, like, I'm excited about that. And I think the sport – and I love baseball. It's my other – it's my other sport, and I'm concerned that baseball has huge problems. And obviously, I think for football and hockey, the thing that's helping our sport is concussions and headshots. And a lot more people are saying, you know, it's it's a it's a safer sport for my kid to play. Um, so uh, I, I feel like the future is great. And, and I guess the three toughest moments uh, would probably the one would be getting swept by uh, the Washington Wizards. In, in a series where, you know, the Raptors were, had a home court advantage and just, that was, two, losing the Philadelphia in game seven. Uh, Vince Carter has an opportunity to win the game, misses a shot. I mean, that was heartbreak. And I really felt like the Raptors were going to get to the NBA finals. If they win that game, I felt very strong and confident that the Raptors were be- better than the Milwaukee Bucks. And the Philadelphia 76ers, by the way, they ended up beating the Bucks in the East Finals and going to the NBA Finals. And, that, and if you can't answer, you can't answer. But you, that whole – because I remember I, – yeah, I mean, I was, I was knee-deep in the Raptors at that stage. The whole – Vince flying in and out before that. Like, did, did, did that have a detriment to the entire uh, – I don't think there were guys happy about it. I remember uh, seeing a number of his teammates and uh, and – one of them said to me, can you, be, can you blank and believe he's not on the plane? I'm like, I was like, who are you talking about? He goes, 15. I'm like, where is he? Because he went to his blanking graduation in North Carolina because we got game seven tomorrow afternoon. Are you kidding me? And I'll, obviously I can't re- say who it was. I mean, that's in confidence. But nonetheless, um, would it have influenced? I don't know. I, I, I just – and I know Vince. I don't think Vince meant it in a selfish way. or It's just one of those moments in your life that you want to uh, – uh, that's the kind of kid he is. That's the kind of guy he is. He wanted to kind of experience graduation with his, his friends. 
Uh, it was an important thing to him, uh, an important thing to his mom. Um, I don't know if there's ever the right answer to that. No, I get it. It's a what if. But nonetheless, if they win that game, I think they're in the NBA Finals. And I'll say this. Uh, the the year before we had Tracy McGrady and we got swept by the Knicks in the playoffs. And I'll never forget the last game. I think it might have been in Madison Square Garden. I don't know where we were. Or maybe it was in Toronto or game one or two. And I watched Vince and Tracy together. And, and the light was really starting to come on for Tracy. If we had both of those guys, on basketball would have blown up in Canada way earlier. And the Raptors would have been in the East Finals and probably would have made a few appearances in the NBA Finals. So what's happening now probably would have happened 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I guess a third disappointment. Uh, man, you know, there's been a lot of them, but I would say probably you know getting swept by the Cavs. Yeah. Uh, and then, unfortunately, you know, Dwayne losing his job and then DeMar getting traded. And, um, you know, and Masai, uh, you know, that's leadership. You got to be bold. Uh, you know, you got to say we've gone as far as we can. And those are tough decisions. Uh, and you got to live with your decisions. And, um, you know, and, it's, you know, I mean, DeMar obviously has gone on, done well in San Antonio. And Dwayne got a great contract in Detroit. And they're wonderful people and, and we're tremendous people for the Raptors. And uh, obviously Masai went all in and rolled the dice and it worked out great. And again, that's bold, gutsy uh, leadership. That, uh, a lot of people, you know, put, you know, it was very easy for Masai because he had a great run going just to keep it going and not push all your chips in the middle of the table. Uh, he did. And to me, I think that's, you know, when you talk about leadership, uh, that's leadership. Um, all right. We have a couple more uh, segments here. And then, so the championship, I think we need to talk about that quickly because we, we, uh, we sort of glossed over a little bit. What is it? So in your field, right? In, in the broadcasting field, you're part of the team, right? You, you're with these guys a ton. You're on their planes, you travel with them. Like you're part of the team, but you're, you know, you're the media and there's a, there's a line, yeah. there's a, there's a boundary. Yeah. So when you win a championship and I say you, because you're part of that, like, what is that feeling at that stage? Is there a, is it is it a is it a broadcasting championship team thing? Is it like is it is it the whole community like like describe if you can describe how was the yeah. feeling? I thought about it last night. It was literally at dinner at the restaurant where we had the championship party after the game. Uh, the, the people said, "What was that night like?" I said, "Honestly, we were on television for close to two hours after the game, uh, in some way, shape, or form." I was working, you know, like, so I'm excited, but I'm working. I got a job to do. Like I got stories to tell. I got to react to pictures and interviews. And, and so that part of it, you're really super dialed into your, the moment and you got to meet the moment. I always say it in our job, you got to meet the moment. So my job is to, there's millions of people across Canada that are hanging on every word that a Kawhi Leonard says in an interview with us or, or Kyle Lowry or whatever, or you're telling a story about whatever, or you're breaking down. So you're, you're, you got a job to do. So you really don't focus on it. Uh, you see the joy around you and fans going crazy, but you're working. Uh, if you get caught up in it, you're not very good at what you do. Um, when it ended, uh, then it was like, Hey, party on. And, you know, we went to the party after, and that was amazing. And you walk in and there's players and coaches and, 
executives and owners and people from all over the organization and families. And and you're right. You get to know all these people and you have relationships with them over the years. And you see a guy like a, a Larry Tannenbaum or a Dale Lastman who've been with the Raptors 22 years like me. And I know how much they care about the sport and how, how passionate they were about the NBA in Canada. Um, you know, so to see those guys, I'm thrilled for them because they went in all year, years, all in years ago and they had a belief in the sport and they had a belief in the city uh, that now, you know, I'm happy for them. Um, and I'm happy for the fans, you know, to see the joy in the fans' faces. It, honestly, it, it was so surreal it never hit me uh, until uh, they put the flag up. I mean, the banner up, opening night against New Orleans. That's when it finally hit me. Like, I'm like, did this really happen? Like, don't snap your fingers in front of me. Like, you know, like when I, I, I'm a runner and I see people running in Toronto and they're wearing Raptors NBA championship hat or a T-shirt. I'm like, is that real? Like, did I just <laughs> I live that? Come on. That's not true. Did it really happen? You know, so to see the banner go up and then finally in, in late December to get your ring. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, it was just a, a remarkable uh, thing to live through. Uh, and I hope to live through it again. Yeah, and, and I'm excited about uh, where this franchise is at. I'm excited where the sport is at. And, uh, I, you know, I feel very fortunate to play a, a small little part in, in, in that whole thing. Um, all right. So, Deno, who cannot be here today. Yeah. He had a couple – he sent he sent a couple questions. That he, was, he was looking for your perspective on here, Jack. So, this is uh, via Deno. Deno the legend. Deno the, the legend. Yep. Well, I don't mind for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah. So, his, his first thing was, saw so the good recent young talent in the league. Um. Who do you think emerges as a potential NBA uh, MVP candidates three to five years down the road? Who's the top, top ten NBA guy in three years out of the out of the young talent? Oh, this year's class, I mean, I think Zion Williamson has a chance to be if he's healthy and gets himself in better shape. Uh, he has a chance to be truly special. The challenge is, I'm not sold on the franchise in New Orleans, and I'm not sure. Uh, but I love David Griffin, that new GM. So I, I hope, you know, for their sake, that they're able to make it there. And I think Griff is a good basketball man, and I just hope that they can put the pieces around him. And look, they've had Chris, they've had Chris Paul there. They've had Anthony Davis there, and they haven't been able to do it. I mean, they had a good little run there with Tyson Chandler and, and David West and, 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 uh, and Chris Paul there for a little bit. But basketball failed the first time in New Orleans with the Jazz, and now they're Utah. Uh, where it's been a great success. And uh, I, I just worry about a franchise like that. Can it really survive? I don't know. Uh, but if, if it's ever going to have a chance to survive, he's a charismatic kind of player. And I tell you what, John Morant always jumps off the page. Me. Those would be the two guys that do, they just burst off the page of me when I watch them. And that's what, that's what you know, when you're a scout, and you're projecting, and that's your job as a coach. You know, when I used to recruit, you try to project what a guy is going to be three to five years from now, not what they are now. Um, Matt Devlin had a great line. We were talking about hockey the other day. And uh, Wendell Clark said to him, and it's a great line about hockey, which is a huge mistake they make. He said, don't mistake puberty for skill. You know, a lot of times uh, the kid that's fully developed at 15, 16 years old is a dominant 
hockey player, but the guy that hasn't really grown into his body until he's 19 or 20 could end up being the better pro down the line, but people go all in too soon. And I think as a scout, as a coach, you got to be able to look and project where that guy's path is long-term rather than where they currently are at because you never start, you never stay where you're currently at. You know, you're always evolving and growing. And I look at a guy like DeMar DeRozan, when he came out of USC and where he is now, he's worked his tail off. He's a self-made man. I have such respect for DeMar because there were a lot of flaws and holes in his game that he had that don't exist anymore. Uh, is he the greatest player to ever play the game? No. But to his credit, it's maximizing uh, his everything God gave him. And to his credit, He's had a fabulous pro career, and he's going to make a lot of money and provide for generations to come in his family. So good for him. I respect him. And he's completely having an underrated season yeah. right now. He's having his stats are phenomenal yeah. this year. I actually thought he should have made the All Star team. Yeah. I read it. And, and, and so, and so those would be the two names, the rookies. That to answer your question, uh, wherever Deno is right now, he's. Yeah. Probably on a beach somewhere. <laughs> He's working. He's working. And his, his second question that came up was that the 76ers, 28 and 2 at home, 9 and 23 on the road. How does this happen? That's the third worst road record in the, in the NBA. Uh, I think some of that is maturity. Some of that is ball protection. They have a tendency to uh, turn the ball over in big moments. I think when you tank as an organization, and they tanked. Years. Uh, I think guys like Embiid and Simmons, they grew up in a culture that losing was, I wouldn't say it was okay, but it was part of their early development as pros. I think if you look at Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, guys like that that broke in with the Raptors, they had to earn every minute they got. They played in a winning culture. There was accountability, expectation, and if you didn't do it right, you didn't you look at the other night against the Phoenix Suns, Terrence Davis played seven minutes. I love Terrence Davis. Yep. But you know what? Nick Nurse is saying, hey, man, this is the standard. And if you don't meet it, you sit your ass down. Well, we were and, talking and about that. The, and if you produce, I'm going to play you 35 minutes. Well, you know, and that's what we were, we were talking about that the other night. Uh, we were right there. We were, I, I think we were right in front of the moment where Nick said, okay, that's it. You're done. But I said to Kitch. I love Terrence Davis. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. Play I said to kids, you know what nurses doing right now? He's coaching them. He's coaching them up, right? And that's here's, that's the difference. Here's, here's the interesting thing. This is about, you know, and I, I have actually I have had this discussion with Terrence Davis, my, my dear friend Frank Layden, who was the former head coach, president, GM of the Utah Jazz drafted Carl Malone and John Stockton. His line is this the guys you the team you break in on and the guys you play with and the coach you play for. Your first opportunity in the NBA will, in a lot of ways, define the pro you become. Right. So I said to Terrence, look how lucky you are. You know, look at the role models you have. Look at the fact that there's a system of checks and balances here. If you produce, you're rewarded. If you don't produce, you sit. You know, you got to meet a standard. You got to meet the moment. And he's like, I want that. And that's what I love about the kid because he really wants to be a good pro. And I think he will be a good pro. Because he's breaking in on the right team. So I guess to my point about the sixes, guys like Simmons and Embiid are great, great talents. They still are learning what it takes in that big moment. Shot clock running down, you're on the road. Can you execute 
and take a high percentage shot and make the shot. Are, are you going to be precisely where you're supposed to be in your defensive coverages under duress in the last two minutes of the game? Are the, you can't have brain points. And I think the challenge is they started off in a system where uh, it's, it's more talent-based. It was a talent thing. They were tanking for talent. But are you laying the foundation of habits you know, what did Aristotle or Socrates, one of those smart guys, excellence is a habit, not an act. You know, so, so when the best teams in the NBA, I always look every year, and you can look right now, the best teams, the contending teams have the best road records because you've got to probably win maybe one, maybe even two games because the other guy might come steal one from you. You get, Can you win? Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, we can win two games in a series on the road? You definitely got to probably win one. Uh, by the way, the Raptors won all three here last year in San Francisco, in Oakland, excuse me, in the NBA Finals. That's a champion, and people forget that. And and uh, so Philadelphia, here's my ch- concern with Philly, though. They're so talented, and they're loaded, and they're big, and they're a tough matchup. And they're not an easy matchup for Toronto. They're not an easy matchup for a lot of teams. They're good enough to win all their home games, as you mentioned. And they're also good enough to steal that one game in a playoff series where now you got to go to their place and steal one from them. That ain't easy either. So would I want to play them? No. Uh, but but the road record, if I'm a Philly fan, I'm really concerned. Um, all right. All time. Raps. Starting five. Plus six, man. Don't forget the six, man. Uh, well, the best Raptor of all time is is, is uh, the best season of all time is Kawhi Leonard. Uh, the greatest talent is Vince Carter. The best Raptor of all time is Kyle Lowry, no question. He's great. Give those three, give those three spots. Yep. Uh, I would obviously say uh, uh, Chris Bosh uh, would be uh, just, just a tremendous player. And then five and six, I would probably go like a DeMar DeRozan would be a guy there. Uh, he would definitely be in that category. Uh, and then uh, Tracy McGrady wasn't here long enough, in my opinion. Uh, I would, you know, I always look at who impacted winning and who defined winning and things like that. I would probably say Antonio Davis. Okay. Uh, Antonio Davis, it's one of the greatest trades. Other, other than the Kawhi Leonard trade, I, I think it's probably the second greatest trade in Raptor history. Uh, was the trade for Antonio Davis. They traded Jonathan Bender on draft night uh, to Indiana. And I think Antonio Davis put us over the hump and, and made, you know, that year the Raptors ended up uh, winning the first round against the Knicks and seven games against. But Antonio, they, Antonio was, you know, now obviously he had his issues playing in Canada. Since, since then he's matured. I think he recognizes now what a great situation he was in. But when you're young, and, and the Raptor franchise then wasn't what it is now. It wasn't a developed franchise. They didn't have a system of checks and balances in place, an infrastructure in place for kids from the United States that knew nothing about Canada playing there. And I think uh, that's all changed now. That, that actually, I wasn't. Uh, that's good, uh, good point. So, do you think, do you think we're a legitimate free agency destination now? Like, do we have legitimate shots when there are people? Absolutely. Uh, you know, obviously Toronto is the third largest city in in um, in pro sports behind uh, New York and Los Angeles. Chicago is now four. 
in terms of population. Um, you have a national TV following. It's a unique franchise. It's a national team. Uh, opportunities for players in yeah. Canada. Uh, if you're an African-American player living in Canada, you, you know, and I'm not being political here. I just, I think Canada is just an incredibly welcoming, diverse, warm, friendly society. And I'm an American working in Canada and, you know, I see the United States and there's still the challenges we have with respect for race. And there's a lot of issues, but respect for race. I think if you're an African-American player playing in Canada, I think you find that the longer you play there, the more comfortable and accepting you feel and safe. And, and like, it's a really cool culture. It's a really cool place to be. And you're a national hero playing in Canada. So, uh, yeah, is it cold? Sure. It's cold in Boston. It's cold today in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. It's cold in Milwaukee. Giannis, it's cold in Milwaukee. I get what you're saying. But, you know, my point is, I always used to say this because I coach, I'm head coach at Niagara and, you know, we're snowy Buffalo. And I used to say, hey, man, if you're concerned about that, you're not a ball player. It's about playing on a cold winter night in a warm gym that's packed. And you know what? Every night that arena, the Scotiabank Arena, is packed. You know, you look at attendance. You look at TV ratings. You look at sponsorship and marketing opportunities for players. Are you going to get that in – an overwhelming majority of, uh, and I'm not going to knock any other cities, uh, just, you know, there's such a thing as recruiting and there's such a thing as negative recruiting. I always tried to recruit to my strengths and camouflage my weaknesses a little bit. That's sales. Uh, but I think if you're a Toronto, I think and in Canada, you have every right to say, hey, man, we're at the big boy table. We put our best foot forward. And I'll tell you what, Kawhi Leonard didn't come back. But tell you what, Kawhi Leonard had to wrestle with a decision that he never, ever thought. He never, I think in a million years, ever thought he'd have the experience in Toronto that he did. He'll remember it the rest of his life. And I know, based upon just being around him and, and, and the experience that he had, he had a wonderful time. And it was better than he ever thought. And my point is, I think even though he didn't stay, I think a lot of people around the NBA looked and said, this situation's got amazing potential. It's always been a sleeping giant, but I think the Raptors have every right to feel that anytime they're engaged in discussions, they want to trade for a guy. I don't think you're going to have a situation anymore where a guy says, I don't want to go play in Canada. We used to have that. That doesn't exist anymore. Yes, or exactly. situation and your Messiah and Bobby, you and, and Nick, you guys have every, those three guys have every right to walk into a player and an agent and their family and say, hey, man, we are the Toronto Raptors. And, you know, I wouldn't say you say you're lucky that we're here. You know, that's arrogant. But my point is, I think you have every right to walk in that room and say, hey, yeah, we're you know, we belong here. And, and, and for anyone to ever think that's going to change is out of their mind. So and uh, test to the Phoenix game on on uh, Tuesday. You can't like guys like Booker have to look around in that stadium. That stadium was half, almost half Toronto fans. It felt like, yeah, it was packed with Toronto fans. And a trade possibility comes up. I don't think it'll. Who knows? I have no idea. But and they say, hey, uh, Toronto's interested in you. I think he'd go. 
shit, I'll go. Yeah, I'll go there in a heartbeat. When I play there, it's sold out. People love it. It's crazy. I mean, I might get to play golf in my shorts every day in Phoenix, but there's nobody here. Nobody cares. We tell them Booker, all his home fans will be in Phoenix too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You you don't think players in Detroit know? Hold on a minute. They have seventy percent of the building is Raptor fans. Yeah. Don't you don't think the Raptor players notice all that? Right. And you know, so and now the visiting, yeah, the visiting players, visiting players, and you know, so you you talk to guys that have played during this stretch, the Patrick Pattersons and the Amir Johnsons and the you know the Jose Calderons and the Matt Bonners and all these guys. Uh, you know, and, and they come back. Think about it. Charles Oakley was in town last week for the Raptors 25th anniversary gala and all that for a few days. He's a love in Canada. Yeah. He only played here a few years. Yeah. He can't he can't go to a game match no. right because they can't play one car parade. And it's a disaster. <laughs> well, what does it say about Canada? What does it say about Toronto? What does it say about the Raptor organization that, you know, Oak in his career, his signature moments of his career were with the Knicks and the Bulls. The Raptors would probably be third on the list. And yet, he's a beloved guy. He could come back 10 times a year and do appearances if he wants. I mean, Muggsy Bogues, what did he play? A year and a half with the Raptors? He's back all the time. Like Al McClain mm-hmm. is a national hero. Yeah, we adopted those guys. We adopted those, you know, those teams, point, yeah. The point is, that yeah. was even that big. Yeah. Think about Think about uh, Kyle Lowry the rest of his life. You know, think about Jonas Valanciunas, even though he wasn't lucky enough to be on the team when they won the title. Those guys can walk back uh, in Toronto or anywhere in Canada, and they're iconic figures the rest of their life. You don't get that in Charlotte. You don't get that in Memphis. You don't get that in Oklahoma City. I'm telling you, you don't. And this is a special place. Um, All right, listen. We gotta we gotta wrap this up. But top five players you've seen play. So not anyone you haven't seen play doesn't count. But you're all time five that you've seen play. My life, your life. Uh, well, obviously Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Will Chamberlain. Uh, I'm probably gonna have to bleed more into five. Oscar Robinson at the end of his career, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, uh, LeBron James. I mean, I know that's not a five. Those would be a bunch that are just coming off the top of my head. Uh, that really stand out. Really jump out of me. I'm probably mentioning the Mount Rushmore of players. Are, yeah. But I've got to see them play. You know, I, I saw Michael Jordan um, play in college in Carolina. Uh, first game I ever coached as a college coach, we played at North Carolina. He had just gone to the pros. And uh, so we played at Chapel Hill. Uh, first game I ever coached. We lost in North Carolina. I mean, they still had a great team. Uh, but Jordan had just gone to the pros. Uh, at the time, They, if I'm not mistaken, they still had Sam Perkins. I mean, they were loaded. They were loaded. Uh, but literally, I'll never forget. It was November, I think, 23rd, 1984. The reason I remembered it was we were in our film session in North Carolina and Doug Flutie throws the famous touchdown pass for Boston College to Gerald Phelan and beats Miami. And we're all watching the game going crazy before you put the Betamax tape into the <laughs> television. I was just watching the Betamax tape in, and then Tom Bendy was going to run the tape session. But um, 
I don't know why I haven't brought that up, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, it's it's just so many great memories. I mean, those would be the guys that would jump out at me. All right. Um, All right. So this is our first ever Twitter question. So we had someone, now this speaks to the, our following. It's a terrible Twitter question, but it's the only one we got. So I'm going to ask it. Yeah. Now we're on Instagram. I'm working on the IG handle. I was was told the other day it's called IG. We don't call it Instagram apparently. We call it IG. Um, So, the question is, where did Wilt score? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Ike, Ike, that was a terrible. Ike's one of our. We know Ike. The guy asked, "What? I'm going to work on you. We're never going to. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a basketball second. Paul Jones is though. Uh, he would know all that, but uh, I know enough about it. And I remember enough about it. Uh, but I, I remember moments. Uh, I'm not great with dates and names and this and that, but some of that stuff uh, jumps out. All right. So the next question, not it's not from Twitter, but this is from uh, my old high school friend Mary Lowe, who's tracked me down. Well, Mary, she had a thing for me in high school. She doesn't, but she still sort of follow me all the time. I can't, I can't shake her. I cannot shake her. Um, <laughs> yeah, like listen, you've seen it, you've seen it in action. Um, so she would like to know your thoughts on the great sport of curling. Mary grew up as a curler. She wants to know. I've actually curled curl twice. Yeah. I've curled twice at the Saint uh, Saint Paul, Minnesota Curling Club. Paul Graham, who's a guy who's been very influential in my career. Paul was our producer at the time with the Raptors, and he took us curling. And, you know, he had, we had pizzas and beers and all that. And, and uh, actually showed it on a Raptor game uh, during, like, coming out of a timeout break, showing us all on the ice curling. The funny thing was, though, Chuck Swirsky, it wasn't funny at the time. Chuck lost his balance and landed back, hit himself hard. We were worried he had a concussion. He was okay. Probably knocked some sense into him, but uh, <laughs> we were all laughing. I had a few chuckles with it as well. But yeah, I've curled twice. It's a very social sport, uh, really hard, very intense. Uh, the, the second year I did it was more fun than the first because I knew more of what I was doing, and you, know, you got the, the brush there and all that stuff. And, and, and you, you know, and you got to keep your balance and. You know, you got to be pretty strong to stay up and not fall down. Yeah, but I guess you probably enjoyed more of the post curling activities. That, well, I'm champ, you know, I'm, I'm a champion at the night club champion at the 19th hole. And the Buena Vista. And the Buena Vista. I enjoy that, but I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, if someone said to me, would you like go to go curling again? I would not turn down the invitation. I would go. I think it's a fun thing. Mary, happy? I hope so. No, stop calling. Stop calling. Uh, all right, Jack, listen, the last thing. We always do a what drives you fucking crazy segment. I, war- ah. I warned you about this. Yeah. So we're going to do one. Kitch, you have one today? You better. I do. I do. Right. Yeah, I've I got, do. I'll, I'll start us off just to get you so you can. I already know what it is. I, I can tell you what drives me nuts. Oh, you're going to go. Oh, Jack, jump right in. It's your uh, show. So uh, people, <laughs> people walking around the streets yeah. with their head buried in their phone. 100%. Uh, a young lady and a young guy sitting at a Starbucks. Uh, you know, it looks like they're probably in high school or college and maybe dating or whatever. And they're both got their heads buried in the phone instead of getting to know each other. So I, uh, having a conversation with somebody and the person is texting while they're talking to you, uh, sitting in a bar next to people years ago, uh, and I mentioned this to you guys yesterday, the bar we were in, there was no television and the music was very, very low. It's a place for conversation. And the thing that was great about that place yesterday we were at, 
people are actually enjoying each other's company and having a conversation and looking each other in the eye. But the traditional bar you go into, and if you sit with eight other people at a bar, everyone's got their head buried in their phone and nobody ever talks to each other. The beauty of sitting at a bar and the beauty of the great bartender back in the day was how great a conversationalist they were. So I think cell phones are a great thing, but I think they're a part of the ruination of our society because, uh, because we're losing the human touch. And um, I always joke about my broadcast style, trying to be Joe Bag of Donuts. I, I, you know, what you see is what you get. And uh, I, I think phones get in the way of you truly being authentic and being yourself. So there's my rant. I agree. I agree. No, that's a good one. I that agree. Was, yeah, for your first one, that was very, very good. Now, we probably should go full disclosure and say that Jack still does his expenses via paperclip and Correct. stapler. So the technology do might my, be. Do my paper. I do, my, I do everything by hand. And then he mails it. Yeah. And then he mails it. So a little bit older school. That's fine. But you know what? Still, listen. Old I have files, files and <laughs> I have staplers and paper clips. Check everything. Everything done by check. Yeah, no audit. No e transfer. Yeah. They can screw, they can, they can, they can screw you that. Yeah, just king. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Kitch. So Bart and I, in, in uh, before the Phoenix game on Tuesday, we we decided we'd hit a casino. So we go into the casino, and how in this day and age, in in everywhere you go, like you go to restaurants or social, you have to smoke outside. Yet still, in this day and age, in a casino. You can blow smoke all day long right next to people beside you. When are casinos going to get with the time to say, listen, we cannot smoke in these establishments? We came out reeking. We came out reeking of smoke for our five-hour stint in the middle of the desert at some casino in uh, in Phoenix. Yeah, well, when are casinos going to stop preying on people who don't have money to be, to be gambling in their casinos too? I mean, Obviously, that's why you guys were there. <laughs> we were two prime candidates. Well, we were the youngest people by 30 years there. Of I can course. tell you that. <laughs> that so you're going to be like in years, uh, you know, like, and I, uh, you know, and I've seen it, you know, my wife enjoys going to the casino. I can't stand what? it. I can't stand it. And, but when I go, I mean, for me, I'll have a beer. I'll, there'll, there'll be a TV there and I'll watch a game and she'll gamble and then we'll go to dinner. But I, I agree with you. Like you see all these old people and I'm like, I don't want to be that person when I'm in my seventies in a casino, I want to, you know, I, I, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to do, I'll go back and coach high school basketball, coach baseball, whatever. I mean, but I, you can't, you're not going to put me in a freaking casino. Uh, so it's good. You, 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 you can drop Dina off and then you go to your volunteer job and pick her up at the end of the day and everything works fine. <laughs> I'll be fine. I can't volunteer. If I'm, if I'm dropping her off, I'm going to have to get, get a job. Yeah, keep that job. job in my late seven. I'll tell you what I'm doing next time I walk into that casino. I'm going to make sure my first, my first aid is current. Oh my! I'm gonna have to act right now and save that person. He could. Play. <laughs> it was. A, it really was unbelievable. The guys were playing crap. It was. I did not feel good about myself when I walked out of there. I can tell you that. Even I won money and I didn't feel good about myself at all. <laughs> all right. Last thing for me. So uh, along the lines, Jack, almost the cell phone. I hate communicating with people. It drives me bananas. Do not communicate with me via an emoji. I don't want to see an emoji. I don't want to see a thumbs up emoji. Like if I ask you a question or I confirm something, don't send me the thumbs up emoji back. That's not what I'm looking for. I didn't, I didn't ask you the question via emoji. Just give me an answer. I don't need a thumbs up. I don't need the, the little emoji with the tears coming out. Cause you're laughing so hard. I don't need any of that stuff. Just and everyone does it. Everyone. You should talk with Maddie. You and Maddie would not get along in that. Everyone, Maddie's the emoji guy. 
if you if you, if you string them together like seven or eight in a row, it's like you know what are you like, like, I got I to show my romantic side. By the way, I, when I send my wife a, a text or an email, I always finish with love Jack, and I put a heart and I put a heart next to it. Heart emoji. Yeah, I think love said that, didn't it? Well, what what's I, the heart mean? It means I love her even more. I just want to let her know achieving. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm sorry, I'm not your handler. No more, yeah, no more emojis. No more emojis to respond. If I send you a question full of emojis, respond back in emojis. But if not, don't. But love, you had it down with love. Just you know, yeah. love was good enough. And I love you. <laughs> All right, Jack. Listen. By the way, thank yeah. you for wearing the hello. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Plug. We got the hello. Uh, hellojack.ca. So if you want, we got St. Patrick's hats going. We got the t-shirts, the sweatshirts. So thank you for supporting it. Hello, Jack. That's it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Had a great time. We got the we got the Napa wine tour tomorrow with with Jack and the boys. So we're we're up nine thirty on the bus for the Napa wine tour. So after the nine thirty is a pickup. Yeah, eleven o'clock is the first stop at Camus. Camus Jack's Jack's choice of wine is our first our first. I know. I know. I saw the night. Love it. A, like a real legitimate full day off, you know, because you rarely are you two days before the next game. And then, you know, we'll go to Sacramento on Saturday and play there Sunday, then Utah on Monday. So I'm actually excited tomorrow to actually have a full day where I can just kind of wouldn't say let my hair down, but uh, yeah. enjoy. By about 3.30, I'm not sure much choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say this. I was, someone sent me a note uh, today. Uh, no emoji and asked me if I could do a radio show tomorrow afternoon. They said, I'm going to be a nap tomorrow. I don't think it's a good idea. I got one final question for Jack before you go. One, one final question. I know. I don't got to wrap up. So Jack, Jack, you got to keep this to a very short answer, but wraps this year, do we stand a chance? That's what people ask us. Do we stand a chance this year? Uh, I think if the Raptors are completely healthy, uh, I think they legitimately have a shot, number one, to get to the East Finals. And I would like to see them, if, if at all possible, if they could finish second. I think that'll help them greatly because uh, I think a 2-3 matchup with either Boston or Miami, you want to have home court. It's going to be important. And I think that the Bucs, uh, let's say if the season ended today and the Raps, every all the top four seeds advanced, you know, you're talking about if you're the uh, – if you're the Bucs, you're going to play Miami the second round. I don't think that's an easy series for the Heat. I mean, for the uh, Bucs. Let's see the Heat. And, 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 and I feel like if you're playing the Celtics, do I think the Raptors can beat them whether they have home court or not? Yeah. But I, I would say I would much prefer having home court than not having it. Uh, I think if they can get to an East Finals, again, whether that would be against the Bucs or whoever wins out of that bracket, uh, I feel confident if they're healthy. And again, if they got to be healthy, their margin of error is such that I think it'd be really difficult uh, to get to the NBA Finals again without a healthy team. But I think if they're healthy, uh, I feel very confident defensively in their team, uh, how well coached they are, their role definition, that, uh, and they have that wiz- winning residue. And I think there's probably doubt in other places uh, about maybe internally what those teams can do. I feel that they have the organizational know-how to get there again, but they got to be healthy. If they're, if they're healthy, I like their chances. If they're not, I worry. I agree with you today. That could easily change by next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, our listeners know. Our listeners know. Bart is hot and cold. Well, I, I, 
I have no doubt if they have a fully healthy team, I agree. they can play anybody in the league. No, I agree. All right, listen, Jack, thank you. Uh, quick shout out to Kenya. Just so you know, we have six downloads in Kenya. So we have followers in Kenya. Yeah. yeah. Kenya. Okay. Wow, really? Kenya. Yes. That's so awesome. they, you're everywhere now. You're everywhere. Thank you. And I hope, uh, I hope we have good uh, listenership and um, looking we, forward to it. You know, like I said last night, you're our Bill Murray. You're our first ever guest. And when this thing when this thing goes, when ESPN buys us out or Bill Simmons buys us out, you're going to be our first guest. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, Bill Murray basketball connection. His son right. Luke, Luke Luke Murray is an assistant at Louisville for Chris Mack, and Luke was at Fairfield and Xavier. And Bill is a big basketball fan. He follows his son Luke around. And Bill was the first um, guest for for Letterman. That's why you're, he was our first uh, for Letterman on his NBC show, and then he was his first guest. Uh, when he took over at uh, CBS. So you're oh, Bill Murray. There you go. You get another Irish Catholic uh, joining you here. You, I'm your first. There you go. So you, you guys have a future ahead of you. <laughs> All yeah. right, Jack. Thanks again. Yep. Uh, loved it. We'll do it again at some point in the, in the future. And as always, Kawhi, take us out of here. Kawhi up top. Looks at the clock. Turns the corner for the win. Go!